Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. You know, as, I was, as we were reading the psalm, I am very thankful that I can read. You know, we take that for granted. I see guys in the jail who have a real struggle with reading. And I, I am so thankful for that, to be able to do that, to be able to just sit and read something. I want to start out this morning by quoting Richard Baxter, one of the Puritans. He said this regarding a wife. He says, A wife is to be a helper to your soul and to stir up in you the grace of God. And I say that because we're going to go to Ezra chapter 7 and eventually land on verse 7, verse 10. Because several weeks ago, Helga was studying Ezra in a Bible study she does. And this verse was important to her. And it stuck out to her. And I knew I was going to be preaching, and I didn't know what yet I was going to do. And I thought, that's a great verse to talk about. So, because of her stirring up the grace of God in me, um, I got digging on this this particular verse. So Ezra chapter 7. Let me just start with the background here of the Ezra. The Jews are in Babylon. We know that. They're in captivity. But actually now they're owned and operated by the Persians. The Persians took over for the Babylons. Now God has turned the hearts of three Persian kings. He's taken their hearts and the Bible says that a king's heart is like water in God's hand, and he's formed their hearts, these, these pagan, worshiping, ruthless kings, and he's taken their hearts to be used for God's purposes. And this is a fulfillment of it, Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra chapter 1, and three, one through 3 That's the first return of the Jews back to Jerusalem. They're under the order of the Persian king Cyrus who told them to go back to worship and build the temple. So they went back, a a group of them went back, they built the altar and they worked on the temple. In chapters 4 and 5, they ran into a glitch. People were opposing them and they actually had to stop the work on the temple. But eventually, during the reign of King Darius, the, the work started up again and they began to build the temple. And Darius in chapter 6 orders that rebuilding and the temple is finished and is dedicated. Now Ezra chapter 7 and 8 are the second wave that goes back to Jerusalem. Under the decree of Artaxerxes, the king opens his treasury literally opens his treasury to Ezra and the people. About 7,000 people traveled four months from Persia to Jerusalem. The king opened his treasury. They took all kinds of goods from the people that were donated. And these 7,000 people carried 25 tons of silver, 
and four tons of gold back to Jerusalem. And the king told them, buy all the bulls and buy all the lambs and buy whatever you need to worship God and whatever's left over, do whatever you want. Now, after the first service, Matt came to me and said he calculated the dollar value of the four tons (laughs) and it was $250 million worth, I think he said. (laughs) That's a lot of gold. And so they had all that at their disposal to worship God because the temple's finished. However they needed to worship God and then to do whatever they wanted with it afterwards. Chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra, Ezra, they continue on this journey of worship. And I like to call it a journey of worship to Jerusalem. And that's what we're calling the message this morning. The journey of worship. Because I believe Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 is exactly that. A journey of worship for our lives. The second thing I want to talk about is Ezra chapter 7 verse 6. Look at that if you would. It says, this Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for. That's pretty good. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. So two things here. One is, Ezra's a scribe. A scribe, we know, is a government official. A scribe was an emissary for the government. A scribe could be one who uh, composed official government documents. The scribes were the one who administered the temple treasuries. um, And they served some literary functions as they took dictation. They also copied uh, scrolls. So that's what Ezra did. That's what he was. Um, He might have been a ranking, some kind of a ranking official, even in the Persian government. We know that's not impossible. Joseph did that and Daniel and others. Um, But the most important qualification of Ezra was that he was a teacher of God's law, God's truth. The second thing it says here is that the hand of the Lord was upon him. He was a bearer of the hand of God. One of the things I like to do is I like to ask the the Scripture questions. And so I began to ask the Scripture, what does it mean in the Bible, because the hand of the Lord is used several times, what does it mean that the hand of the Lord is on you? I mean, it seems like that'd be a good thing. But it's not always a good thing. For Ezra, it was a very good thing. It was a positive thing. I mean, let's face it. He had the king's ear, he had the king's heart, and he had the king's money. That's a good thing for him and the people of Israel. But if you go to Samuel chapter 1, verse uh, 5, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was also on the Philistines when they captured the Ark of the Covenant. And that was a bad thing, really bad thing. 
God put his judgment upon the Philistines and they got tumors all over them. But there's some humor, I think, in that. Not in the tumors, but in also what God did. They took the ark and they put it in the temple of Dagon and the, and the idol was there and at nighttime the idol would fall over. And then they, I love, the, I love God's humor, and then they, they set it up and the next day God did it again. It fell over. So, but in the midst of that, God's judgment, his hand was upon them. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14, David's in great distress. And he's got his soldiers around him. And he tells them, we, it's important for us that we fall into the hand of the Lord. For that's where we find his great mercy. So for Ezra, it was journeying in his worship for the people of Israel back to Jerusalem with the king's treasury. For the Philistines, it was the judgment of God. For David, it was the mercy of God. In Job 12, verse 9, Job attributes his condition, his sores, his losing all his family, the, the place he was in, he attributes it to the hand of the Lord. So the hand of the Lord was on Job. We know that. God gave Satan permission to do what he wanted to with Job to a certain point. He couldn't kill him. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel says the hand of the Lord was on him and because of that, the Spirit of the Lord took him and set him down in the valley of bones. You go to the New Testament, there were some men who came from Cyrus and they came from Cyrene and they came to the city of Antioch and they were speaking to the Greeks and they were preaching to the Greeks and they were talking to the Greeks about the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, the hand of the Lord was upon them and a great number of people came to know the Lord that day. So to bear the hand of the Lord could mean trouble, it could mean judgment, or it could mean opening the king's treasury for the march to Jerusalem. Go to chapter 7, uh, verse 14 in Ezra. Artaxerxes writes a decree, a document. Ezra is to take this document as he travels back to Jerusalem. And this is what it says. This is part of the document. Verse 14 says, For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Freely. You got, do, you got this? Do what you need to do. And then he goes down to verse 18. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers, do with the rest of the silver and gold what you need to do according to the will 
of your God. The treasury's open, Ezra. (laughs) Go worship your God. I'm giving you 25 tons of silver, four tons of gold, and all the other stuff that the people are donating. Go ahead. And 7,000 of you go. Kings don't do that. Pagan kings don't do that. That's not good business. <laughs> People leave. They never come back. They, they, get, they grow in numbers like they did in Egypt. They're a threat to the king. God turned and the, hand, the mind and the heart of that king and used that king as he wanted. The third thing this morning, this morning I want to look at verses 7 through 10. So turn in Ezra 7, Ezra 7, verse 7. It says, And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests, and the Levites, and the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I believe Ezra is a worshiper here. And I want to look at five points here in just in verse 10 that talk about, I think, a journey for him and for the Israelites, and for us as a journey of worship. You know, we, we, we limit worship. We limit worship to coming to church on Sunday, singing, maybe going to a life group, whatever, preaching, uh, hearing the word of God, the fellowship. We, we come and we call that worship. I just, just heard that there was another church that called it experience. I don't want to go there. We call it worship. But that's not all the worship. The Bible's definition of worship is extremely broad. In fact, Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. Now the glory of God is why God created us. He told the Israelites in Isaiah 43, 7, I'm cre- I created you for my glory. That's why we exist. That's why we breathe every day for God's glory to be exhibited in our lives. And, as the Westminster Catechism says, to enjoy Him forever. Psalm 1611 says that the, in His presence are pleasures forevermore. The question is, how do you eat and drink to the glory of God? How, we talk, I talked about this in the first, use an illustration in the first service. How do you eat pizza to the glory of God? I think one of the ways you eat pizza to the glory of God, besides enjoying it, is you thank God for it because he's the one that gave it to us. If we didn't have the job we had or we didn't have the money we had, we wouldn't be able to have the pizza we have. And so we are to be thankful for the pizza. 
So that glorifies and honors God to thank him. I think it's important to thank, we thank him for our clothes, we thank him for our jobs, we thank him for our families, we thank him for everything, whatever we do. Then Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we're to do everything to the glory of God. We're to do everything in the name of Jesus. Whatever we do is to be in his name, and we're to give thanks to him in all things. And that glorifies God in our lives. I have a hard time in the hard times giving thanks. I'm not a good... Lord, I am so thankful for this pain. <laughs> I, don't, I don't do that well. I'm a good complainer. But we are called. I know we are called. Help me, God. <laughs> to give thanks. I can do it at the end of the problem. Looking back, saying, okay, now... Oftentimes, I, now I understand what you were doing. I had an assignment in the army. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And I was a complainer in it. And eventually I moved, as we always do in the army. <laughs> but looking back on it, that was God's purpose for me to be there, and I should have shut my mouth and done my job period. And I didn't do that well. I wasn't thanking God for one thing in the process because there was a purpose for that job. There was a purpose that God had and I could see that later that I couldn't see it when I was in it. So this is a journey for Ezra and the people. It's a journey of worship. So I want to look at five things here in this passage. It says here, verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart. That's the first thing I want to look at. He prepared his heart, or he fixed his heart, or he purposed his heart, or he determined his heart. Ezra had a tremendous heart of love and zeal for what he was about to do in this verse here. Now in the ancient Hebrew, this word set or prepared, it's a picture. It's a word picture. And the picture is a seed, a picture of a seed that's opening up and it's forming a root system. And the root system forms then the base of this plant. And the roots go down deep and then the stalk or the plant begins to grow. That's the picture of setting your heart, rooting, rooting your heart in the Lord. So Ezra has a heart that's rooted down deep, firmly established to worship God in this way, in this particular verse. I like to ask questions to the scriptures. 
I think if we ask the scriptures questions, we dig deeper. So here's one question I ask. How do you prepare your heart to study the word, to apply the word, that's what Ezra did to do it, and then to teach the word to other people? How do you do that? I came up with four things. There are probably more than four things in the scriptures. But one of the things I came up with was repentance. In 1 Samuel 7.3, Samuel tells Israel this. He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then you must put away your foreign gods. That's repentance. And you must direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. That word direct is the same word that Ezra in Ezra as set. You put away your idols, and we all have idols. We all have idols. We have to put our idols away. Our idols may be a thought. It may be a, um, uh, some, somebody hurt our feelings, and we, we nurture that hurt. We treat it like a little god. We feed it, clothe it. Keep it, cuddle it, whatever we do to it. Um, you know, in Nepal, we got to see people uh, dusting their gods. As I said earlier, I don't need to, I don't, I don't dust my God. I'm the one who needs dusted, not him. But whatever it is, whatever idol it is, it can be a thing, a purpose. Uh, you know, f- for the job that I hated, My idol was my hate for that job. And I nurtured it probably every day, or almost every day. It was a pain in the neck. (laughs) And God says, put those things away. Before, when you come to me, repent of those idols. Take those idols and destroy those. Kill sin before it kills you, John Owen said. Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 4 first words repent for the kingdom of God for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so there can be no setting of our hearts there can be no rooting of our hearts without repentance turning away from our idols and directing our hearts to the living God that's the beginning I think The second thing, or I don't know if the second thing or the second order, is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Go to Romans chapter 12, if you would. That's a familiar verse, probably, to most of us. Familiar two verses. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By the testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So before we can study and apply and teach, 
We need to have our lives presented to God as living sacrifices with our minds renewed or being renewed in the truth of his word. The third thing we ask is we ask God to prepare our hearts. I can't do this and you can't do it without God's help. That's impossible to do. We need God to work in our heart to be able to prepare our hearts so that we can be in the presence of God to learn about God and what he wants and expects of us. First Chronicles 29:18, David in the assembly of all the people prays. He says, "O Lord, direct their hearts toward you." He's asking God, "God, direct our hearts toward you." Because I know God, my heart isn't naturally directed to you. So God, direct it toward you, I pray. It's the same word that set that he uses for direct here in Chronicles, the same word as set in Ezra. Lord, set their hearts toward you. Lord, fix their hearts for worship, to worship you and you only. You know, we, we read Psalm 119, parts of it every week, and Verse 18 says this, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. I can't find out what's in here unless God opens my eyes and does a work in my life to know. You know, when when I was in college, I went to a community college before university and, and I was not a believer. And for some reason, we had the Bible, we had an English class and we studied the King James Bible. We studied the English. That's what we were studying. We were, using, we were using the Bible. Community college. I don't know why they did that, but they did. And I thought it was the most boring thing I ever read. It was terrible reading. Reading, I mean, come on. When you're an unbeliever and you're reading the Old Testament in the King James, come on. I, I, I had no value in that at all. I mean, I'm... I saw none of that. Man, did everything change when God changed my heart. Everything. It is not boring to me anymore. It is not boring at all. There are parts I don't understand, so you just have to keep digging. But it, it is beautiful. And Psalm 19 says, God, I want to see wondrous things from your word. The fourth thing is, and maybe this should be the first, I don't know, is we need to humble ourselves before God. Psalmist in Psalm 10, 17 cries out, O Lord, you hear the desire of the humble. So by repenting and humbling ourselves before God and presenting our lives before Him and our minds and asking God to do a work in our lives, we are setting and rooting and purposing and determining our hearts to come before him and to do something that Ezra is doing here. I keep saying this is a journey of worship because that's exactly what it is. So first of all, it says here, Ezra set his heart. The second thing it says, Ezra set his heart to study. He prepared his heart, he mined 
He, he dug deep in his heart and, and rooted his heart uh, and, and sought to study or to, to, to seek with care, this word means. Or it also means to investigate with thoroughness all your, all your energy and all your affection. You know, Ezra had a tremendous love for the Scriptures, for the law of God. And, and this word study means all, encompasses all of that. So he takes great pains to study God's Word. And, I, you know, I think asking the Word questions is, is one great way of, of studying or being involved in study. But we're to search God's Word. Why? We're to search God's Word to find out who He is. Who is this God? that I'm supposed to worship? Who is this God that says I'm created to glorify him? Who is this God that has laid out his law before me and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men? Who is that God? That's why with the W4, that's the first question we ask. Because this Bible is not primarily about me. This Bible is first and foremost about God. That's what it's about. These are God's words about God, who he is, and what he's up to. And he has involved us in what he's up to. Thank the Lord he's done that. And, but that's what it's about here. And so we are to study God's word, we're to study, and we're to study diligently. We're to investigate. Go to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you would. Look at Paul says in verse 15 to his, his disciple Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's not an admonition just for Timothy. It's an admonition for us. We can't just throw verses from the Bible around. All verses of the Bible have a context. There's a context here of Ezra. There's a context that involves, goes all the way back to Genesis. All the way back to, to verse 1. In the beginning, God is the, the context that Ezra is writing here. This book is written in. So we, we can't just pick and choose. Every verse has context with which to live in. Otherwise, you can't, handle rightly the word of God without that. That's why we have a lot of false teaching. We take pieces and put them together with other pieces and they don't belong together. They don't fit the puzzle. And it comes up false. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13, it says, the leaders came to Ezra in order to study or to understand the words 
of the law. So we study, we dig, we mine thoroughly with a zeal and with an affection for his truth. The third thing he says is, we, it says he uh, set his heart to study the law of the Lord. So he dissects it and he's mining it to understand the very words of God. These are God's words from cover to cover. They are not anybody else's words. They are God's words. God used people to write these words. He brought circumstances to bear to write these words through centuries and centuries and centuries and author and author and author one message about God and what he's up to. And it all connects together. All the pieces come together. And the psalmist cries out, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your word. So we study the words of God. After all, whose words are most important? You know, you and I get a lot of words coming to our minds every day. From everywhere. We say a lot of words every day. But whose words count in life and death? God's words are the words that count. What words count when you teach your children? It's God's words that count. You're teaching them principles. God's principles. God's direct words. Or we're teaching others. Whatever. Jesus, the Bible says, he says, I'm truth. He tells his disciples in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth. Well, of course I do. I tell you the truth because I am truth. (laughs) And Jesus says in verse 13 in John 16, he says, and when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Of course he will, because he's truth. He won't teach us anything else. There'll be nothing false that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. There'll be nothing false that comes out of the mouth of God. There is not a false word in here. It is all truth for us. In John 14, 26, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will teach you things and will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So when we study the Word of God, it's the Holy Spirit teaching us and bringing to remembrance. Have you ever needed that? When the Holy Spirit has brought to your remembrance God's truth at a particular point? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13 that we are taught by the Spirit. So the words... The study of the words of God are taught to us by the Holy Spirit. They're the very words of Jesus. We are to be miners. We are to be investigators because he is truth, because he is God. In John 3, 3, 3, 3, 33, 
tells us that God is true. So you have the whole trinity that the Bible says is true and gives us truth. So we can count on the whole trinity never telling us a false word ever. All the Bible, as we know, is basically, thus saith the Lord, from cover to cover. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 6, that the religious leaders, in their hypocrisy, by their use of the word, they made void, he said, and that's his word. They make void the word of God. They twisted it, they skewed it, they turned it, They used it and they wanted to use it and fit things in that did not belong there. And that voided the word because it wasn't true. So the words of the Bible, the Bible calls the Bible Scripture, truth, the word of the Lord, the word of God, the sword of the Spirit. In fact, Jesus in Revelation 19, 13 called the Word of God. Also in John. 19, Psalm 19, I should say, is a comprehensive statement. In fact, in Psalm 19, it's like a, Psalm 19 is like a mini Psalm 119, but just in a few verses of Psalm 19 is a comprehensive statement on the superiority of Scripture. And in that, in that psalm, it affirms the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture in that one little psalm. It's all right there. So we're not, we're not to have some cursory investigation of the Bible because that leads to a shallow understanding of who God is and what He's about and what we are to be about in our everyday living. We are to set our hearts to study and to mine the words, the very words of God. I'm going to put a plug in here for Roger Wheelock. He's, he's not here in this service. He was in the last service. Roger and his son Breck have uh, entertained a monumental task to talk about biblical worldview. And they have compiled a curriculum that, first of all, he talks about what is a biblical worldview. He has, a, he has videos, and, but I've been reading his books. And they, they are written for curriculum for probably middle school to high school kids. But, but let me tell you, I'm an adult And I have learned a lot by reading these. Because the first one is, what is a biblical worldview? And then he talks about, him and his son, a biblical worldview of theology, philosophy, economics, science, psychology, ethics, sociology, law, politics, and education. (laughs) It's incredible, incredible work. So I would recommend anybody here to talk to Roger about getting this, these works because you will learn a tremendous, a tremendous amount. The Bible 
tells us what is real. That's the, that's the bottom line here. The Bible tells us what is real. So we are to study and mine God's word. But look at the second thing here. So Ezra sets his heart, sets his heart, roots his heart to study the law of the Lord, and then he roots his heart to do it. It's not enough to have the information. It's not enough to have the, to have the, the desire even in our heart. There has to be an expression of what we have learned in our lives. So Ezra has prepared his heart to study. He's prepared it in a cavernous depth. And he wants to take what he's learned, make and show, let me back up, and, and view it in tangible ways and make application to everything he does. He wants to apply Whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. That's what Ezra wants to do with what he's learned from his study. Now the Hebrew word means to, the Hebrew word to do means to produce. It doesn't mean just to do something. It means you're producing something. Or it means to accomplish something. Or it means to act in such a way that it has an effect to it. And all that encompasses is not just the doing, but includes right thinking for our lives. Paul tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.6, that we have the mind of Christ. So if we have the mind of Christ, we are to be right thinkers in our lives. Thinking can get skewed. Thinking can get out of place. Thinking can get off track. That's why Paul says where minds are to be renewed. What we see, what we hear, I mean what we see, what we comes into our mind in some way, through the ears, through the senses in some way, and, and there's a thinking process going on here. And is it right thinking or is it skewed in some, some way? Paul says in uh, 12, 2, Romans 12.2, as I mentioned, we're to have a renewed mind. And in 2 Corinthians, he said, we're to take every thought captive to Christ. Is this right or is this wrong? Is this right thinking or is it wrong thinking? Is it according to the truth of the Scripture? Am I looking at this with a biblical view? Am I looking at this like God looks at it? and thinking about it like God thinks about it, and then acting upon it like God wants me to act upon it. One of the examples, I think, is there's a lot of false understanding about who God is. False thinking that is not biblical thinking. We make God in our own image. And we, how could God do that? How could a good God do that? We, you know, that's a common, common phrase. How can, how, can God, how can God let all those people be destroyed in Nashville? All those buildings, 25 plus People die, at least two fam- whole families wiped out. How can God allow that? 
And our thinking is skewed by the question, how can God let it happen? Why didn't it happen to me might be another question. (laughs) We could ask. But I think it's important because the only way we can get an understanding of who God is is from his words. And then it won't be distorted in any way. God is a God of love. God is a God of wrath. God hates the... The the wicked. God hates wickedness. God hates unrighteousness. God loves sinners so much that he sent his son. You know, that's our God. And a lot of stuff else is our God. And we need to have a proper understanding. Okay, who is it? I'm not going any further. In Leviticus 22.31, God says, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Jesus makes a clear, strong statement in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in John 13, 17, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And in Matthew 7, 24, he tells this parable about a house built on a rock and a house built on the sand. And he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So there's an expression of the study. There's an expression of the learning that must take place. So in these passages of John, what's the corollary to not applying the truth of Scripture correctly. One, no love for Jesus. Two, no blessing from God. Three, if you don't apply the truth, I become a fool. And in the end of that says, great was his fall. That's pretty strong language. You know, the, the writer of Proverbs talks about not obeying is foolish and you're a fool to not obey that's strong stuff (laughs) so we mind god's truth in order that we could think like he does that we can learn what he wants us to be about and we, we apply his truth then to every part of our lives every part of our work our family our shopping whatever we do our decision-making, our buying, not buying, everything. Proverbs 7, 1, Proverbs 7, verses 1 through 4, says this. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, I like this part, wisdom, you are my sister. (laughs) And call insight your intimate friend. 
<laughs> Those are great words to live by. The fifth thing is, Ezra does here, he sets his heart to study the word of God, to do it, and then to teach it. This word teach in the Hebrew has the idea, it's a great word, it's another picture, has the idea of this staff, a pointed staff. And it's a pointed staff that is used to goad an oxen to keep him in line. <laughs> That's the word here, to teach. In the Greek, in New Testament, it means to impart instruction or to teach doctrine, to teach what is true. And it involves this process of line upon line, uh, precept upon precept that we, that we are to teach. So, to getting closer to the end here, I ask four questions about teaching. I think they're important. I ask, first of all, who is it that does the teaching? What does the Bible say? Who are the people that do the teaching? Second Timothy says, faithful men are to teach others. Okay? He, te- he writes to Titus in Titus chapter 2, and he says, older women are to teach younger women. In First Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that you are to teach, over, overseers are to teach. Although the leaders of the church are to be teachers. In Proverbs, it says fathers are to teach their children. Proverbs 1.8, it says, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. So, we have fathers, we have mothers, we have disciples, uh, are, to be t- are, are to teach, uh, faithful men are to teach, men, faithful women are to teach, uh, ev- so far everybody. And then Jesus commands his disciples to go all into all the world and teach them to observe, he says, all that I have commanded you. So there is nobody left out of the teaching process. So everybody in this room who's a follower of God is to be a teacher. In some way, some shape, some form. Every one of us is to be a teacher. So the second question I ask is, kind of a stupid question, but it's a good question. What do we teach? Ezra set his heart to teach God's law, to teach God's words, to teach the words that God has revealed to him. Words taught to the people Deuteronomy tells fathers teach their children David in a a time and season of his life where he had sinned with Bathsheba in his repenting prayer in Psalm 51 he cries out to the Lord and he says this he says restore to me the joy of your salvation upholding me with a willing spirit then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So we teach God's truth. We teach his ways. We teach sound doctrine. We teach Jesus' commands. We teach the way of God. We teach the way of sin. We teach that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We teach that all are lost. We teach the call to repent. 
and turn to God. We teach about the cross and the lamb that was slain, the Lord Jesus Christ. We teach the attributes and the character of God. The bottom line is we teach everything cover to cover in this book. That's what we teach. Third question I asked was, who are the people we teach? Everybody's to be a teacher, teaching everything out of this word, out of God's word. Well, who, who are we teaching? Ezra taught the people. Jesus says to go into all the nations, teach the nations, the disciples you make in the nations. Fathers and mothers teach children. If you go to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke is teaching Theophilus. 1 Corinthians 4, 17, Paul teaches the way of Christ and it says, everywhere in every church. Paul taught Timothy. Paul taught Titus and others. David taught sinners. So there's nobody left out who shouldn't be taught. So everybody, the follower of God is a teacher, teaching all of the word of God to everybody. <laughs> the fifth thing, or the fourth thing I asked was this. Why should we teach God's truth? God gave a very clear answer in Leviticus. Leviticus 22.31, I've already quoted it. God says this, Show you, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. Colon, I am the Lord. That's why. We teach everybody all of God's truth, Purely because he is God. Purely. And everything that comes from him is why we were created, what he's about, what we are to be about that glorifies him in our journey of worship. So life is a journey and I think Life is a journey of worshiping God because if we do everything to the glory of God, that's exactly what we're doing. To live God's way, we must diligently study His Word. Discover who this God is that I'm supposed to follow. I love this connection between Abraham and God and how God unfolded to Abraham who he was. He unfolded to Abraham who he was by different names that he revealed about himself. And he did to, to Isaac and he did to Jacob as he's revealing who he is. He's revealing it through various names, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Jireh, and, and on and on and on, Yahweh, Yahweh, and everything. You know, it's amazing. So all through the Old Testament, God is unfolding who he is. And so you get more information and more information 
and more information. And at the same time, he's unfolding what he requires of his creation. So along the way of study, we apply the truth we learn, both in our thinking and our doing, and conjointly with that, we teach others. So I'm here to say today, and I submit to you, that setting our hearts to study the Word of God and to do the Word of God and to teach the Word of God is worship. That's worship. And that encompasses all of our lives. Let's pray.